We are studying verse by verse through the book of Daniel, that great Old Testament book. The book of Daniel will be in Daniel chapter 1 in verse 8. It's where we're starting this evening. Daniel 1 and verse 8. We're probably all familiar with the phrase, less is more. Great little phrase. It's first attributed to an 1855 poem by Robert Browning. He wrote it about the Italian painter Andrea del Sarto. Del Sarto, anybody, has anybody ever heard of Andrea del Sarto? I had it. He was a master painter, well celebrated. Unfortunately for him, he was a contemporary with da Vinci, Michelangelo, and Raphael. But while he was alive, he was known by some as the unerring. That's how they talked about him, the unerring, because of the perfect correctness with which he painted. And we see a great portrait of another unerring young man here in chapter 1, Daniel and his friends. Daniel's faith is going to be put to the test right from the beginning of his time in Babylon. If you weren't here last week, you learned that Daniel and a bunch of other uh, of his peers and uh, the young men from Jerusalem had been taken by Babylon, taken captive, prisoners of war, and brought to Babylon, and then recruited to serve in the palace of the emperor Nebuchadnezzar. And right from the beginning, his faith is going to be put to the test. The question it was here in Babylon, so far from home, with so few options available to him, and such great pressures closing in all around him, would his devotion to this God of Israel still be real, or would his spiritual fire burn out? As we see this remarkable man and his three friends triumph over adversity, we'll also note that with God, oftentimes less is more. He can do much with little. There's so many of our favorite stories in both the Old and New Testaments is really the story of God doing much with little. And really, that's a promise that he makes to the lives of you Christians here today, that he says, I'm going to make my strength perfect in weakness. Other passages like, hey, not many mighty, not many great people in the world are chosen to be used by God in a particular way, but those weak and seemingly foolish people of the world. God loves to make more out of less. He can do much with little. He can satisfy thousands with five loaves and two fish. Daniel's example tonight should encourage all of us because even when we are in the less times of life, whatever that may be in your particular circumstance, we learn that in Christ we have more strength, more backing, more supply available to us than we could ever ask or imagine. And along the way we learn that God is doing more than we realize to accomplish his purpose. Now, when we last left off, Daniel and his three friends, Limited Babylon, they were put into a training program along with many other Jewish boys where they would be fashioned into Babylonian academics, trained to be officials to serve the world empire. We begin at verse 8 with what is probably the very key verse when it comes to the biographical narrative portions of the book of Daniel. We talked about this in our very first study. Daniel roughly splits into two parts. The first half, generally speaking, is sort of biographical, stories from the life of Daniel and his three friends. And then the back half, the last chapters, are prophetic, talking about visions of the future, the visions of the world empires that would come on the scene. 
And here in chapter 1, verse 8, this is the key verse to the narrative stories, to the biographical stories in the life of Daniel. Here it is. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested to the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now, in the previous passage, we saw that the young men in this program were the absolute cream of the crop physically and intellectually. They were captives, yes, but here we see they had been recruited for this special project, and they were going to be treated not unlike some of, some of these big schools treat quarterbacks. You hear these stories about how these NCAA schools treat their quarterbacks and how they pamper them and give them all the best materials, how they really try to keep them going along and keep them happy and keep them operating the way they need them to operate on the football field, right? Well, something similar is happening in this scene. Uh, Daniel and his friends, they were worked hard. I mean, what they were going through was rigorous and intense as far as the training and the learning and the schooling and all of that, but they were being treated very well. In fact, the king himself was setting their diet. He was feeding them from his very own table, the best of the best that Babylon had to offer. And so these guys were getting the very best food in the entire kingdom, right? And the king himself was kind of overseeing uh, that program at the highest level, and they were being taken care of. But there was a problem. The menu would include, of course, non-kosher meats like pork, for example, and Babylon was a deeply pagan kingdom. All of this food would have been dedicated to idols, particularly the meat and the wine, maybe even at the start of each meal. You know, as Christians, you know, it's part of our Christian culture here in the West to sort of start, you know, dinner with a prayer, right? Well, in a similar way, in Babylon, they think they probably started all of these meals with a, a pagan ritual to one of their false gods like Chemosh or Marduk or all these weird gods or whatever. So that's what was going on here. And we run into this same sort of issue in the New Testament as well, right? Paul is talking to the Corinthians and he has to give them kind of a lot of instruction to the Christians in the church about how they were to sacri uh, handle food sacrifice to idols. What, what happens? They were living in a Greek, you know, a Roman culture with all of these, you know, Greek uh, gods and those sorts of things happening. And a lot of these foods would be sacrificed to idols. Uh, in many cases, that food would then be sold very cheaply. Most of the Christians in the first century were slaves or very poor. And so obviously they were wanting to get deals on meat. And so it became a sort of issue. And Paul spent a lot of time talking about, okay, here's as a Christian how you should navigate this issue of meat sacrifice to idols. Now, in our case, as Christians in the church age, uh, we are not constrained by the Levitical law. We're not Jews under the law of Moses. And so Paul's answer to the church was to discuss liberty uh, in Christ and how to handle our liberty while not stumbling others around us by not causing others to be discouraged or to sin. But for Daniel, the situation is very different. Daniel doesn't have an option of liberty in this case. He's a Jew under the Levitical law. He may be in captivity but that's still how God wanted his people to relate to him in that time. And so he had no option. This food was doubly prohibited. Most of it was, or at least some of it was not kosher, food that he was just categorically not allowed to eat. 
And then on top of that, all of this rich, you know, delicacies, this meat and this wine was all offered in pagan rituals to a god, probably right in front of him. The problem was it was all the food he got. Uh, the times that I've been overseas, whether it's Colombia or something like that, uh, food's typically a problem for me. I'm not a lover of strange food or food that I'm not used to, right? And uh, there will be times, I've gotten better uh, over the few trips that we've taken, but, you know, eventually I'm going to be served something that my stomach says, no, thank you, and uh, I have kind of a problem. And, you know, I can sort of just hold out or pass it off or, uh, or you know, nibble around the edges. And, and I know, hey, I'm going to go get a bag of chips later. I'm going to walk down, there'll be some awesome Doritos there at the little market, and I'll be okay, right? Or back up in my room, I, I've brought a bunch of granola bars and nuts and things like that. And so I have options. Uh, that's not what Daniel and his friends had. This was it for them. This was all of their food. There wasn't another menu for him to choose off of. It wasn't like the airline. Do you want your, the, you know, the kosher meal or the chicken meal or whatever this other option is over here? We're told here, though, that he purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. And what a great line. Such a great short sentence describing what it means to be a godly person. Here we see the proper perspective and the practical response. Daniel wasn't concerned that he would just look less spiritual if he ate this food. This wasn't a a thing about how he would look to the people around him. That's not it at all. Uh, It's not that he wanted to win the prize for, oh, you're the best Jew in Babylon, and I don't want the other guys to think that, you know, I'm not pious. That's not what Daniel is about. We see there his concern was defilement. His concern was that this personal choice about what he was going to eat would actually ruin his fellowship with the God he loved. That's what he was concerned about. He took a look at this plate of food on that first day, and he thought, you know, I may be in Babylon, I may be a prisoner of war, but if I eat between me and Jehovah, I'm breaking that relationship and saying, you know, I... I don't really want to have as much to do with you, God, as you want to have to do with me. And so this was a big deal and a significant choice he would have to make. But Daniel had resolved that no matter what, he was going to stay faithful and in fellowship with his God. So not only do we see his perspective, his perspective was, hey, no matter the cost, I want to be connected to God. I want to be in relationship with God. I want to be right with God. I want to be in fellowship with him. These are all words that we use to describe what it means to have a proper relationship to God and how God wants to have relationship with us. So that was his perspective. But we also see his response to this dilemma. He purposed in his heart what he would do. He installed a principle in the very core of who he was. That's what it means. When it says that he purposed in his heart, it means he set something up in his heart. And it was a principle It was his driving force that whatever I do, whatever happens, I am going to with the way that I live my life. And so he installed this principle at the very core of who he was. And once he had done that, knowing what to do in the situations of his life, well, that became very clear. Now, that's one of my favorite things when we read these stories. It's a consistent characteristic, not just of Daniel, but of his three friends as well. 
at their core, they desired to be in proper relationship with God, and they purposed in their minds and in their hearts to do that. And because of that, they're able to move through these very tense situations almost casually. When we see them, we don't see Daniel like wringing his hands, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Same thing with the fiery furnace, same thing with the lion's den. They're, they're pretty casual about it. They're very matter-of-fact about it because having installed this principle in their heart, having dedicated their heart, the core of who they were, to this idea of loving God and following after God, what they should do on a nuts and bolts level was very clear. Well, I know I can't eat this food because I want to stay in intimate communion and, and friendship with God, right? And so we don't see them worrying. We don't see them in fear, in situations that we as readers look at and we say, this is an impossible situation. What are they going to do? He says, if you pray to anyone other than, you know, this King Darius over here, we're going to throw you in a lion's den. We look at that as readers and we say, it's impossible. What are they going to do? And they don't have that thought at all. They think, well, of course, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to follow after God. And so it's great. They don't worry. They don't fear. They are operating according to this most important principle. And because of that, Even these personal decisions about like food and drink can become vehicles for a great work of God. Who knew that God would do such a magnificent work through what a guy was going to eat? I mean, think about that for a minute. This is one of the great stories of the Old Testament and a story we all are familiar with if you grow up in the church or if you're familiar with the word of God and we think, wow, the vegetable test, really? (laughs) What a person eats is a vehicle for, for God's work? A story we're going to talk about for thousands of years? Well, yeah, absolutely. Now, we shouldn't discount the effort that this would have required on Daniel's part. Just because he made this choice and just because he did so with confidence doesn't mean it was easy. I mean, think about it for a minute. You're there and you're put into this program and the very first day, the very first meal, they slide this plate in front of you and Daniel knows what's up and you've got a problem. You probably weren't planning on fasting that day But guess what? If you're Daniel, I guess I'm fasting today while I figure this out. We don't know how many days it took him to figure out what he wanted to do or to have his meeting with the chief of staff, which we'll see, or to figure out a plan. But I'm sure, needless to say, that Daniel had some hungry nights. I mean, maybe it took him a week to figure this out, and that means he didn't eat for a week. I mean, so it wasn't just that this was all easy and a breeze, uh, but trusting the Lord was the the plan of his heart. And he trusted that the Lord would be faithful to him just as he sought to be faithful to God. Now, notice how Daniel approaches the chief of the eunuchs. He doesn't stage a protest. He doesn't make demands. He doesn't come in anger. Rather, it says he makes a request with respect and humility. And it seems that he explained to the chief why he couldn't eat this food. He says, hey, I'm requesting because I don't want to defile himself. And so it seems he took the time to explain, hey, here's where I'm at with my God. And and here's why I can't eat this food. And he said, I don't want to ruin my relationship to God. What a great testimony this would have been. Verse 9 says this, Now God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. Every time we see Daniel or his friends doing something remarkable, we see God doing something even more remarkable on their behalf. Here the curtain is drawn back for us as readers, and we see that behind the scenes, the Lord had been working on the heart of this pagan official to give grace and compassion to Daniel. 
Now, remind yourself of this truth, which is presented so often in the Scripture. God is very busy on levels high and low in your home and around the world, working and accomplishing His purpose. God is not off the job. God is not asleep at the wheel. He is busy and at work accomplishing His purpose for the whole world and for your life. You know, the standout verse in this passage is verse 8, and particularly that phrase that Daniel purposed in his heart, but it should always remind us of the fact that God purposes in his heart toward you. If you're a child of God, if you're a Christian, if you've been born again, the Bible makes a lot of plain and dramatic promises about God's purposes for you, just like Daniel purposed toward the Lord. Here's a couple of them. Psalm 57 verse 8 says, I cry out to God most high, to God who will fulfill his purpose for me. Or Romans 8 28, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And so God is at work around you. He is at work in you. He is at work for you. Very important. And as we stay in communion with him, he is able to do great things, even through the small details of our lives, if he desires. Verse 10, and the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my Lord, the king, who has appointed your food and drink. For why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. Chief is talking about Nebuchadnezzar. He knew his king and he was afraid of him, rightly so. Nebuchadnezzar had no problem killing anybody on a whim, and we're going to see him do a lot of it in the coming chapters. Now, that's his king. Let's think about our king, King Jesus, Jesus Christ, the king above all kings, God with us. He's the king who gave himself so that you and I might live. Even though we were at war with God, the Bible says, yet while we were still sinners, God loved us, gave his son that we might be reconciled to him. Our king is the one who loves us and keeps us and lifts up our heads. We are to have the fear of God, yes, but we aren't to be afraid of Jesus like this man's afraid of Nebuchadnezzar. Are you ever afraid of God in your quietest moments? Do you ever find yourselves afraid of what you think he might do? What if God does this to me? What if God sends me somewhere I don't want to go? You know, that's not from the Lord. That's not what God wants for our relationship with him. Remind yourself that our Lord, our king, is not like Nebuchadnezzar, not even a little bit. He's the kinsman redeemer. He's the good shepherd. He's the comforter. He's the unspeakable gift. Those are just a few of the names that are given to us to describe who he is and what he does. Notice, too, here that for this chief of eunuchs, failure would mean what? Death. He says, look, man, I've got this job. I've got one job to do. If I fail, I die. That's the arrangement between me and my king. And now again, if you're a Christian here, think about your arrangement with your king, Jesus Christ. What about when we fail our king? We do it every single day. Well, when we fail, he doesn't meet us with execution. He meets us with forgiveness and help and instruction and the power to do what he wants us to do. Though we fail him every day, guess what? He saw all of those deficiencies, all of those missteps, all of those failures. He saw them all before the foundation of the world, and he loved us the same, the Bible says. Think of people like Peter and James and John. 
the profound failures they produced during Jesus' ministry on the earth. And what did their king do for them? He took those guys and used them to change the whole world, used them fantastically. Now, before we move on, we should appreciate the strength of Daniel's resolve. His faith had endured the discouragement of captivity. Then it endured the temptation of these delicacies. Here it would endure the pressure of friends. He and this man, who's identified as Ashpenaz in an earlier verse, they had a real friendship. Uh, They were very different people, but they were friends. And Ashpenaz here comes and tells him outright, he says, look, man, your religion is going to get me killed. So cool it. And this is, a, this is a big deal. This is a lot of pressure. Apparently, the conversation was left open-ended without Daniel being given a direct command by Ashpenaz because in verse 11, we'll see he pivots and directs his attention to a different official. Look at verse 11. It says, So Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for 10 days. Let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. And as you see fit, so deal with your servants. So he consented with them in this matter and tested them 10 days. Now, it's not clear whether Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those are the other names for Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. It's not clear if they had been in on this with Daniel from the beginning. Uh, But either way, at some point, they had joined with him in this determination. I choose to think that it was from the beginning. The kinds of guys who are willingly, willing to step into a fiery furnace for the sake of their God are willing to go without some meat for the sake of their God too. So, but here we see them unified, speaking as one. They supported each other. They strengthened each other in the Lord in the midst of this difficulty. Let's be Christians like that. Let's be brothers and sisters like that who love in unity and in support and encouragement. Now, they go to this steward, not just to say, we don't want to eat this food. We're mad. But they come with a plan. And I like that because I know in my own life, it's all too easy for me to generate a complaint, right? Complain about something that I don't like. But what's really needed and what what Christians should seek from the Lord are solutions and plans, and instruction from God. And we see Daniel and his friends, they come with a plan. And the plan they bring is reasonable, but it's also full of heavenly expectation. They put a term of 10 days on this plan, probably because anything more would have been too much of a gamble for the frightened Babylonians, right? The Babylonian guys are like, hey man, if we do one slip up, we're gonna get our heads cut off. So they came with this plan. They said, listen, what if you give us 10 days? That's not so bad that we're going to get all emaciated and, you know, let's do 10 days. And uh, that was enough for the Babylonian officials to bite. Uh, But they obviously, Daniel and his friends, obviously had a great confidence that God would respond to this step of faith providentially. Even after being taken to Babylon, these guys never once allowed themselves to think that God was defeated or that God was unable. Rather, they assumed that his power will prevail and that God is going to move in their lives as they serve him. That's clear in all of these stories. They assume God is going to work in their lives and is going to help them and is going to move on their behalf. The alternative diet they suggest was probably not just peas and carrots. The term here used would include all plant-based foods from veggies to beans to roots to grains, seeds, all of that. So they were going vegan. They were going plant-based here. 
And at the end of the 10 days, they wanted not just to be evaluated, but to be compared to the others. I think that's interesting. Daniel says, hey, stand us up next to our peers who eat the king's food, and let's take a look at the difference. And so they're putting it all on the line. And like we saw back in verses 1 and 2, Daniel, this book, is a story of, of a cosmic contest, right? God versus the world, your king versus mine. Of course, Daniel would have known Deuteronomy 8.3 very well as a good Jewish boy. That man does not live on bread alone. And he knew what God could do with a little fine flower called manna in the wilderness. He would have known the story of how it filled up all of the people there, the whole generation of people in the wilderness, how they had no hunger when they would eat manna, how it was all of their nutrients, how it tasted sweet. And if God could do that with a little manna powder out in the desert dirt, man, what God might be capable of doing with all the vegetables, all the grains, all the roots and seeds, all that the fields had to offer. And so I think Daniel was thinking, yeah, this is no problem. Their veggie diet would seem like less from one vantage point, but in reality, it was more than necessary for the Lord to use. Now, there are four stories here in the first half of Daniel where their lives are going to be put on the line, where they were facing a life or death choice. And they all have a consistent element. In each case, Daniel and his friends will make it clear that no matter what happens, they will not compromise. And we see it here. Hey, hey, we are going to go the Lord's way whether you like it or not. Here in verse 13, what does Daniel say? He doesn't say, at the end of 10 days, if we're not looking so good, we'll eat the other food. That's not what he says. At the end of 10 days, he says, you do what you got to do, man. You, you deal with your servants according to as you see fit, just so you know we are not going to eat this food. And so in each of these stories, the lion's did, the fiery furnace, all of these stories, they're going to be presented with this life and death situation. And in all of them, they're going to say, hey, whatever happens is going to happen, but we are going to serve the Lord. A great, great resolve, great courage. And so uh, in inspiration, these guys. I'd have us note also that the fact that two things were true of Daniel and his friends First, they were on record as being servants of the Most High God, but they were also quick to call themselves servants of their steward or later of the earthly king throughout these chapters. We're going to see that a lot. They're going to say a lot, hey, we're your servants. They'll say that to the steward here. They say it to Nebuchadnezzar. But it's also very clear when other people talk about them, they say, oh, the Lord God whom you serve. And so these two things are simultaneously true, right? Their higher loyalty to the God of heaven their core loyalty was not hidden away. It was clear from the beginning, they're like, hey, we serve God. That's what we do. And in the meantime, we can also do this job up until the point where it conflicts with our service to God. Very important. Uh, being a believer didn't keep them from doing their job and doing it well. In fact, they would faithfully and effectively serve in the empire of Babylon while never betraying their true higher loyalty to the God of heaven. It's a balance that most of us have to strike in our own lives as Christians here in the regular world. And what I love about the testimony of Daniel is it can be done. You can be a strong, faithful Christian full of integrity and work a regular, what we would call secular job, and do it well. We don't have to, oh, I'm a Christian, I can't stock the shelves. Oh, I'm a Christian, I, I can't do any of that. You can 
find that balance the way that Daniel did without compromising your beliefs, but also without being what we would call a bum at your job. Verse 15 says this, at the end of the 10 days, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Thus, the steward took away their portion of the delicacies and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Now, this is a miraculous work of God. It's clear that that's how Daniel wants us to read it. Some commentators, when you get to the section, will try to suggest that, well, a diet of moderation in the long run is better. Sure. This isn't the long run. This is 10 days. And, you know, when you go online, and I consulted a couple of websites, hey, what happens when you do switch to a plant-based diet all of a sudden? Uh, generally, you can expect to lose weight, not gain weight. And you might even experience increased fatigue because different nutrients that you usually get, things like iron and calcium, you have to figure out how to supplement them. And sometimes it's difficult to do so, right? So in the long run, yes, there are a whole lot of benefits to being plant-based, but we're talking about the first 10 days here. And yet there was a clear, distinguishable difference between Daniel and the others. The others, we remember, would have included some of the Hebrew boys that they grew up with and knew, other Hebrews, other Jews who knew what Daniel and his friends were doing and why they were doing it, but had made the opposite choice, who had said, you know what, forget this Jehovah guy, we're Babylonian now, forget this covenant that he's made with us. Hey, well, I'm in Babylon. And yet they would see Daniel choosing to follow God and go his way. And they would see uh, the Lord working in their lives. And you know, these other Jewish boys who chose not to honor the Lord, well, they were going to go the world's way and they were impoverished for it in more ways than one. They may have had more in the chow hall, chow hall but much less in the heart and much less in the heavens. We're told in verse 16 that they would stay vegan for all three years of their training. Afterward, having a measure of freedom and independence as government officials, they would have been able to make their own diet clear of non-kosher foods or those sacrificed to idols. In fact, in chapter 10, it's indicated that Daniel, he references that he once again became a meat eater and drank wine, but he was able to get stuff that was uh, clear for him to get. But for those three years, these guys were happy to have less, quote unquote, because it meant more in the areas that really mattered. It meant fellowship and intimate communion with their God. In the last few verses, we see their transition from classroom to commission. Verse 17, as for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all vision and dreams. Now, at the end of the days, when the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And then the king interviewed them, and among them all, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they served before the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all his realm. These four boys would each have undoubtedly scored a genius-level IQ, they were not only the heads of their class, but when they hit the office Monday morning, they were already outperforming the best of the Magi. I mean, it was obvious, it was clear, they were head and shoulders above everybody else in the kingdom. It wasn't diet that did it. It wasn't their own academic achievement that did it. They didn't make themselves this way. They were faithful in, in those personal areas. They were faithful in their studies, obviously, but we're told it was the Lord working through their minds, giving them knowledge and skill. 
And additionally, we're told that Daniel had a gifting for understanding visions and dreams, and that will, of course, come up a number of times later in the book. But in the meantime, these guys were so solid, they became fixtures in the king's presence, serving him personally. And just like that, in a very short amount of time, God had installed four incredibly faithful spiritual men right next to the throne of the greatest king on the earth, the guy who ruled over the known world, a wicked king, a terrible man. And God said, yeah, I can put four guys who are the most godly men in the whole kingdom right there, and I can do it in a very short amount of time if I want to. During their time of training, the other Jewish boys must have thought that Daniel and his friends were saps, passing on all the good stuff, missing out. You guys just served your grains and your seeds while we're eating high on the hog over here. Look at what they're missing out on. They have so much less than we do. And yet, since those four faithful Jewish young men had communion with God, they had much more than all the rest of the guys, not just in that program, but in the rest of the palace and the kingdom. They had 10 times more by Nebuchadnezzar's count. And chapter ends with an important biographical note. Thus, Daniel continued, continued unto the first year of King Cyrus. Now, Daniel lived beyond the first year of Cyrus. We'll see that in the text. It seems that this was maybe the year of his retirement from government work. But more importantly, most importantly, this verse draws our attention to the fact that this was the year where the captivity ended and God's people would go free. The God Daniel trusted so confidently had not forgotten his people, and he has not forgotten us either. God is still just as able, just as busy as we see him in this text. And here we learn that he can do great things through even small personal choices in your life. God can use your face to accomplish this work if he wants to. Uh, Think of Daniel. Think of how much of this story here swings upon how their faces look. They say, hey, take a look at our faces after 10 days. And think about just how much uh, of this incredible story was swinging on what their faces looked like. I mean, there's a lot of other stuff going on, but it kind of boggles the mind. God can use what you eat for his purposes. God can use your face for his purposes, for his glory. God can use my life, my words, my sufferings, my countenance to do his will, to magnify himself. And what is my part? Well, the heart is my part, to keep my heart intimately communing with my Savior, trusting him, expecting him to work, and choosing to go his way, even when that means I might be getting less from the world's perspective. Because in reality, in all the ways that count, I'm gonna come out on the other side with so much more, more than anyone realizes, more than I realize, because our gracious God loves to make more from less, to magnify himself in us, to lavishly work in and through our lives as he accomplishes his many purposes. Amen?